When Brian was growing up, he had no interest in God, no desire to have a relationship with Jesus, and no hunger for spiritual things. I had so little of a fear of the Lord that I remember smoking a joint before my confirmation. I remember getting blazed out of my mind before going to something that's supposed to be like, hey, now you're coming into, it, it didn't mean anything to me. As Brian got older, he wholeheartedly pursued sex, drugs, a musical career, and whatever else he thought would bring him fulfillment. But then God began to draw Brian through a pastor who asked him to play drums at a Christmas service. Then through a girlfriend who gave him an ultimatum about his porn addiction. And then through a Hillsong worship conference. And eventually through his time in the residential program at Pure Life Ministries. Little bit by little bit, God was calling Brian until finally, Brian became a dedicated follower of Jesus. God was tearing down everything that I had thought that I had built up. He was, was stripping away and, and bringing me down to a level to where, hey, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to, to lay your life down. You know, it is going to cost you a lot. Hey, this is Nate with Purity for Life. You're about to hear Brian's story of hope. Here we go. So I grew up in Florida on the West Coast and had a mom and dad that loved me and really went out of their way to provide the best that they could for me. And that looked like Catholic school. So I was in Catholic school from an early time and we would go to Mass early on. I remember a few times like being at like some kind of Sunday school thing with songs and they had these rhythm sticks that we, they, we would play and sing little songs and things like that. And the school was, was a better school. I remember my parents, as I would get older, they would be like, we put you in the school because it's for your education. And I never liked the uniforms. I remember being really young and rebelling against conformity, like at an early age. The uniforms was the first thing. And as I got a little older, it would be like your hair and that kind of stuff. Um, I remember I had one teacher one time who I failed a test just intentionally to spite her because I didn't like her. And this, I think, was like first or second grade. So even though my life was normal at that point, looking back on it now, I can see like seeds of rebellion and being like, well, I don't want to be here. But home life was good. Uh, I had good times with my mom. She would cook things. We would play at the house. Very normal American family. Um, I was an only child, so I felt like the world revolved around me and my family. You know, my dad would go to work. My mom would be at home taking care of me during the day um, until I would go to school or daycare as I got older. When I was about eight years old, my dad got into um, a really bad car accident. A drunk driver hit him going like 60 or 70 miles an hour. And uh, he should have been dead. He was trauma lifted to the hospital. And I remember my mom receiving a phone call and calling the neighbor who I'd never stayed with before and bringing me, getting stuff together for me. 
had like a Teddy Ruxpin or something at the time, this little bear that would you put tapes in. And she gave me that and she got me like a blanket and a pillow and brought me to these neighbors who I'd never stayed with before and said, you need to stay here tonight. And I just remember it being the weirdest, strangest thing. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, she was going to the hospital. She didn't tell me what had happened. But I stayed in this room, unfamiliar room. I remember um, being awake, like just looking out the window going like, what's going on? Uh, later to find out that my dad had been in that bad car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver. And they I didn't get to go see him. He was so bad that they didn't want to scare me as an eight-year-old. He had to have his face completely reconstructed. Uh, they had to graft skin from his thighs in different places. They used some of his ribs, I believe, to reconstruct his nose. It was a very, very long battle and there was a lot of rehabilitation that he had to go through. It's a miracle that he's still alive after this accident. So because of that accident, you know, all the routines were completely different. I don't remember much from this time other than just how things weren't right. It was mom and me at home. Dad wasn't there anymore. I just remember being alone and the house feeling very empty. Um, I remember my mom crying on the stairs and I'd go to her and try and comfort her, but didn't really understand, you know. I knew Dad was hurt, but um, it was almost like that picture-perfect family that we had had. Everything kind of stopped at that point, and there was this reality of trauma and this reality of, okay, things aren't going to be the same after this. At some point in my recollection of the events after the accident, my parents began arguing, and there was some kind of relationship between my dad and a woman that caused my dad and my mom to get divorced. Um, the woman that my dad was involved with was married, and that marriage fell apart as well. And then that husband from that second broken marriage ended up marrying my mom, becoming my stepfather. And kind of when he would see me, I think he would see me kind of as a younger version of the man who broke up his first marriage, if that makes sense. So it was really a lot of turmoil, you know. Uh, the court battles were really difficult. I remember the other mom turning one of my stepsisters, like trying to get her to look for dirt on my stepdad. And just, it was, it was really not good. It really didn't set me up to have a good view of marriage. So sometimes after my parents divorced, I found a magazine in my dad's apartment and I didn't understand what was on the cover. Turns out it was uh, two naked people. And when I confronted my dad about it, he had told me that they were just sitting in a chair. But there wasn't really an explanation as to what it was. There wasn't an explanation as to why he would have that. And I was intrigued by it. So after that, that developed a desire to search it out and a desire not to get caught when I found it, because there seemed to be something in him that he was shocked that I had found it. As a kid, I think you can tell when your parents are reacting a certain way, whether they're trying to hide it or not. So I knew this was something that I wasn't supposed to find and I wanted to know more about it. I remember going in and finding, okay, it's in this drawer 
And I remember at a very early age being very like detail oriented, trying to remember which way each magazine faced so I could put it back the exact way. That was a part of it. That was a part of this intrigue and this sneakiness that I had as a child, which would lead into all sorts of, I mean, the sneakiness leads into lots of lies, right? And trying to do things without others knowing. Um, so that was, I delved into sexual sin, but it was also a delve into this whole world of lies and this whole world of deceiving people that loved and cared about me. All right, so um, I've got Brian Menendez in the studio with me, and we're going to talk a little bit about his story. Brian graduated from the Pure Life Ministries residential program back in 2021. Uh, Brian, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, I'd like to talk a little bit about growing up Catholic. It was pretty clear from the testimony that our listeners just heard that it wasn't a big part of your life. It was, you you went to Catholic school and you went to Mass, but it didn't seem to have a whole lot of impact on the way your family lived from, you know, Monday to Saturday. And I guess I'm just wondering how that shaped your view of God as a young boy. I think because it wasn't something that was practiced at home, that it was more of just kind of like, okay, this is something we have to do. And it it wasn't really enjoyable. It wasn't something I enjoyed doing either because it was so stoic. And it was like, okay, you need to be quiet and you need to be good and you need to behave. There wasn't like an excitement about meeting with God. It was more about we have to do this to present. Like you've got to be here and you've got to act a certain way. And what kid wants to sit there and be quiet and, you know, so I remember that as as I got a little older with it, I remember kind of like seeing the hypocrisy with all the gold. I would see all these gold chalices and these robes and this very, very high thing. And I was like, well, is, that's kind of weird. If Jesus is a carpenter, why do we have all this expensive stuff? And why do we have all this stained glass in this huge building? I remember that, like the hypocrisy of it at an early age kind of turning me off and not wanting anything to do with it, really. Um, I didn't have a fear of God. I remember the ceremonies like First Communion, and it was more just, okay, learn, here's the proper way to hold your hands, here's the proper way to walk, here's the proper way to to be reverent. But it it almost, it wasn't like for God, it was like more of, of a show for the people there, and so I understood how to do Mass. It didn't feel like a time of worship, it didn't feel like any of that to me, So I just looked at it, okay, I learned how to do this thing, they'll be fine, then I can go back to living my life after this hour's over, when's church over, you know, let me get out of here. I I had so little of a fear of the Lord that I remember smoking a joint before my confirmation. I remember getting blazed out of my mind before going to something that's supposed to be like, hey, now you're coming into, it it didn't mean anything to me, Mm. you know? Mm. So it really, like, God wasn't even really in your mind. Like, this whole thing of going to Mass and acting the part, it was all about people. Like, God was just extremely distant in your mind. Is that true? Yeah, I would say the only time I would really think about God was, like, when my grandpa died or something like that. Like, I would think about praying to him when things got really, really bad, 
And that was just kind of like, I don't understand this help, mm. you know. But my normal day-to-day life was was more focused on just getting things or escaping from pain or, you know, it wasn't there, – there wasn't really a fear of God mm. Mm. or a reverence of him or, you know, worship or anything. Mm. Um, so you had two really difficult situations when you were young. You had your father's car accident and this long hospitalization and then your parents' divorce. How did you – I don't know. How did you handle those things emotionally? Hmm. Um, I think I I went into self a lot. It it was really self kind of self pity. Looking back on it now, um, I was very quiet. I wasn't very social of a child. Didn't have a lot of friends. I would kind of stick to myself. I could figured out early how to manipulate my parents because of the divorce and the guilt that they felt. How to get things. And my time with my dad or my mom would be about, like, how can I get this toy that I want? And then, okay, I got a video game, and now I would just sit in my room and isolate and play video games. So I think the need for escape, you know, um, this all didn't make sense. And they tried to bring me to counselors and stuff that would try and talk through some things, but it never really got to a point to where, like, I was really working on any issues. I was more just, again, just a performance. Hey, the, my parents are bringing me here. I don't know why I'm here. I want to get home and play video games. You know, it was just kind of that thing. What what can I do to to make Brian happy? Because the outside world uh, is very chaotic. Mm. Um, so then, I mean, I know from my own life, man, like sexual pleasure becomes a powerful motivator for whatever it is that a person's looking for. If they're looking for just pleasure or they're looking for acceptance or they're looking for escape or whatever. I mean, it's just, it takes that, (laughs) like video games is one thing, but man, you start looking at pornography and discover self-gratification or whatever. Boy, that levels things up pretty, pretty big. Um, So you're 10 or 11 when you discovered sexual sin when did your sexual sin begin to like escalate and how did that happen? Yeah, I would say it it pretty much started when I would be at my mom and my stepdad's house. I would feel like the only time I could really kind of get away would be in the shower. And I remember taking really long showers because I was in there masturbating and my stepdad would joke about it or whatever. But that was like, that was the release and the escape that I found that was the one place where I wouldn't be kind of questioned or pursued. I, I was alone in that moment, you know? So I remember that being kind of like the area where the acting out really started as far as masturbation. Okay. And entering into to middle school, um, I found a, a girl and it was always like something that I, I think I learned from movies that to be a man, meant that you were going to have sex. And I remember my stepdad at one point even confronting me about it when I was still a virgin, saying in a joking way, oh, I know you've already had sex. Like, you can just go ahead and admit it to me. And I was like, I was actually like really embarrassed that I hadn't, that I was like, well, no, you don't believe me because I've lied to you so much. But this is one thing where I haven't had sex with a girl, but you think that I have. And it was almost like normalized, you know, 
there wasn't ever a time when they like really talked about it. So I looked at the fact that I hadn't had sex and I was in eighth grade at this time as like a bad thing. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, I need to find a girl to have sex with. And the girl that I found that would do that with me, I was with her for about six years. And uh, we started acting out in seventh grade in the middle of a class. We would sit next to each other in class and do things to each other and try and hide it from the teacher behind the teacher's back. And um, eventually her mom ended up letting me come over and we would watch movies and her mom would let us go in the room and close the door. And, you know, you can imagine what that ended up in. Then it would be in high school, in ninth grade, when I ended up getting her pregnant. And then we went through a whole period of the pregnancy and her mom, who worked for the Catholic Church, wanted us to have an abortion. Um, I'm so grateful that uh, my girlfriend at the time did not want that. I did not want that. I remember we prayed, you know, um, we knew the Our Father, and I remember us sitting in, when she told me, I remember us sitting in bed together, like weeping the Lord's Prayer together. And I, I think he helped us make that decision for that child's sake. We were both really twisted and really far gone. I was into drugs at that point, cocaine and marijuana and hallucinogens. And... Um, God used her getting pregnant to kind of wake me up with the cocaine and to help me get away from that. So that was that was his hand involved in that. But I was still so far gone. Uh, we made it through the the pregnancy and did a private adoption. Um, that was when I was eighteen, and then that moved into high school. Uh, high school I didn't last very long. I withdrawed from um, high school on my own. I dropped out, and my dad said, "Well, you got to work." So I started working began playing music at that time and began like devoting hours and hours and hours to learning to play the drums, uh, really poured everything into that and partying and started to idolize musicians, started to idolize uh, the rock scene and the jazz scene and would study their lives and emulate, okay, they did these drugs, they did this, let me do that. And all the while with this same girlfriend Eventually, I went to college for music, was able to, to put my life back together enough to go to college and still idolizing self very highly, idolizing performance, because that's what the music school taught. If you sound good, then you are good, and was just going down that whole road, continuing to use drugs. Eventually, I ended up breaking up with her, telling her I was only with her to have sex with her, broke her heart, and pursued my dreams up in Philadelphia until that whole thing fell apart and I ended up working on cruise ships. And that was bad. Um, it got me out of drugs because they drug tested, but it introduced me to alcoholism. And I was drinking a case of beer a day, 10 shots of Jägermeister a day, blackout three or four times a week, um, sleeping with anybody who would sleep with me. Um, during that time, experimented with homosexuality, um, just got to the place to where it was like, I just need a person to validate me. Didn't matter who it was, but let me get drunk. Let me do this. Let me party. Let me go out. Let me find someone to be with. Uh, just a very shallow, very hollow existence and not finding any satisfaction anywhere. Being in all these beautiful places, you know, being in tropical regions and um, being all over the earth and still not being content, still just, just miserable in all these addictions. 
you know, you had grown up in Catholic, going to Catholic mass, you'd grown up in Catholic school. I mean, I'm sure somewhere along the line, you had heard something about like morality and Hmm. that sex outside marriage was wrong. Did you have any strong conviction at any time about your sin? Or like, did you have any sense that like, wow, I think God wants a relationship with me and my life needs to change. Did you have any of that up to that point? At at that point, I mean, the biggest conviction would be when she got pregnant and I realized, okay, this is bigger than us now. But after the adoption, it was kind of like, okay, back to me again. You know, I was looking into other religions. I was looking into Buddhism and meditation. Uh, I was big into LSD. So this whole like, oh, expand your mind and and I'm God, basically, you know, that was huge for a long time. Um, it was all about the experience that I had and just searching out whatever altered experience that I could, I could experience while here on earth. You know, I would push the limits as far as I could with drugs to see if I could function in a normal way around people and then brag about the fact that, oh, yeah, I'm sitting here driving a car or I'm working a job and I'm on five hits of acid and you never knew. You know, it was this weird like – what's the word? Just kind of trying to conquest, trying to conquer these things and trying to reach this next level. But no, it was never with the intention of getting to know God. It was always with the intention of like, look what I'm doing, you know, very selfish. Hmm. I'm wondering if there were like two things going on inside you, like Hmm. on the one hand, just so miserable and so like there's got to be more Hmm. than this. But then on the other side, kind of this belief that Like, I'm made for more. Not just like I'm trying to escape this misery, but I'm also made for more than Mm. this. Was there that sense of of just misery, or had you just blocked all of that out of your life? I think I had pretty much blocked most of it out. I think I had hardened my heart to it and was just searching searching for satisfaction in career or in performance or in feelings, sensations, you know, like get me to that ecstasy moment and just let that stay. Mm, Okay. So (laughs) this is really interesting because I think that you in one sense are very different from a lot of the guys who end up at Pure Life because most of the guys who end up at Pure Life, they grew up in the church. Something was really wrong with their relationship with God, but they would have almost all of them would have always professed Jesus, right? And a lot of them were small group leaders, or we even have pastors and missionaries and stuff, but you weren't even, like, pretending to be a Christian. So how did the Lord begin to woo you and draw you? God is so, so good. Um so it, it was when I, I was with another girlfriend after I got off, after I got fired from, for being drunk on a cruise ship, the, one of the captains finally fired me, and I remember them sending me home from Malta in Italy, giving me a plane flight after quarantining me for a week. They're like, you need to go. You're done. And I got home, 
And I got into another band and I met a girl, imagine that, and moved in with her after two months and was with her and really felt like I loved her. And she discovered my pornography addiction. And she's like, you got to do something about this. And I was like, okay, I'll do anything. I I don't want to, we had two dogs together. I was teaching drum lessons. I had a more stable life than I had had in a long time. We had a house together we were living in. Um, in sin, again, not convicted at all by that. This is normal. You know, no one's telling me anything else otherwise. So yeah, she, she found out and she gave me that ultimatum. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go to some sex addiction meetings. So I found an SLAA group and went and found out that I, it was really freeing to actually talk about the fact that I was addicted to pornography and masturbation. I had never talked with anybody before this point at all about it. And it was really scary, but it was nice just to sit in a room and just to be honest about it. It was like, wow, I've never done this. And I've never been in a situation where anybody would have asked about this. So in that sense, the meetings were good because it it gave me a place and a platform to start being honest even if it was with complete strangers. But, you know, it's the whole higher power thing. Um, so so my God is the group now. Right. <laughs> you know, my God is the people around me, and now my God's my sponsor. And, you know, you're depending on human things, which is really messed up. But it, God was merciful with me enough to get me to that place. And right around this time as well, when I started going to these meetings and started seeing a sex addiction counselor, I got a call from an Episcopal church that they needed a drummer for their Christmas service. And I'm like, okay, how much money are you going to pay me? You <laughs> right. know, this is my, my, my job. I'll, I don't right. care who's going to hire me. Sure. I need money. Yeah. I'm a freelance artist. Yeah. So they, they agree. I agree. Um, I go play the show and the show. <laughs> and they loved it. They called me back. They said, we want you on the worship team. And I'm like, okay, how much money are you going to pay me? Oh, my goodness. You know? Wow. And so we get there to rehearsal, and it's a young priest. God really used him. He, he was on fire for the Lord as a priest. And he goes, okay, before rehearsal, we're going to have Bible study. And I was like, whoa, no. No, no, no. No Bible study for this guy. I learned the songs. I'll, I'll run the rehearsal, but... And he's like, just sit here. You don't have to, you don't have to talk. You don't have to do anything. Just sit here. And so I said, okay, I'll sit there. They would read, you know, two or three lines and then just talk about it. And then that would be it when we'd rehearse. Well, I started waking up after this, you know, I was in this band, this worship band now, and I was also in secular bands, but I started waking up singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. I'm like, what, what is this Hosanna in the highest? What am I, what's going on? Like, why is this in my head? You know, this is weird. And then uh, Hillsong Zion album came out with Oceans on it and all these songs. And like, I liked it, but like, I didn't like it, if that makes sense. Like I would put it you on. You liked it musically or, or even more I, than that. There was something There was something because I didn't like the music. Oh, but I would put it on and I would be like, man, this I have this sense of peace. Why do I have the sense of peace when I put this CD on? And so I would listen to it kind of like kind of like, okay, well, I'm just doing this to learn the song for rehearsal. But then I would like it. And I was like, what is happening? And these songs are playing through my head. And God was wooing me in that. He was using this thing that he knew I had made a God of, my music, and he was showing me that he was just so much better. 
And through his mercy, through this Episcopal church and through this band that let this drug addict come in and join their worship team, he slowly started drawing me to himself. And I, I slowly started to ask questions, you know, like, well, well, what's this? And and through the, the sex counseling and stuff, I realized, okay, I, I couldn't get pure from sexual sin because I was still drinking. So I was like, hey, I've got to quit drinking. My girlfriend didn't like that because we drank together all the time. And then a buddy of mine got arrested for dealing dope. And I was like, man, well, if I get busted dealing dope, then they're going to take my dogs in my house and I'm going to be in jail and my girlfriend's going to be on the street. So I was like, oh, okay. So God removed alcohol. He removed drugs. I'm still fighting for the pornography thing. um, But now I'm in church on Sundays. Okay. So God has started to just draw you. Um, The word is starting to do some kind of work. You're responding to it. You're things are starting to break off of your life. Obviously, you're going to end up at Pure Life, so there's some stuff in between then and now that we need to hear about what what happened next. Eventually, uh, we went to a Hillsong concert, and when we got home, my girlfriend at the time was so mad because at Christian concerts, they don't serve beer, you know? And she was so mad. And she got home and she said, that was just too much Jesus for me. And we'd been together for, for six years. And it was at that point when I realized, hey, God's doing something in my life and our paths are totally different. She initially wanted me to get off pornography, but she didn't realize that that was going to open the door to me dropping off alcohol and dropping off drugs and dropping off all these other things. And now I'm like curious about Jesus and now I want to pursue what this thing is. I don't understand it. You know, I'd raise my hands like when no one was looking kind of thing and be like, oh, what is that? You know, totally didn't understand it, but felt God calling me, felt God drawing me through through worship. So um, broke it off with her, moved down to Fort Lauderdale and found a Calvary Chapel, got plugged in there and started going to Bible studies, started asking God, can I really believe what this word is? You know, and I remember praying that one day and then... The next week, I found out that um, there was a movie called Case for Christ, uh, Lee Strobel. And I went, and I was the only person in the theater. (laughs) There was no one else in the theater. And I remember just watching this movie, and every question that I had was answered in this movie. And I remember weeping in this movie theater by myself, just like, God, like, you're really real. Like, so for so long, I've, I've just thrown my life away. And you've called me back to you. You've ripped away all these things, you know. Um, But while all that was happening, while he was doing that work, I was still struggling with sexual sin. I would white knuckle it or I would, you know, make it a few days or whatever, and then I would relapse. And I I would go a little farther and I would relapse. And I just couldn't get free from it. I was still going to these meetings, but I started to not feel comfortable there because they would ask me, you know, to say, hi, my name's Brian and I'm a sex addict. And I was like, well, that's not what I'm reading in the Word. No, I'm not a sex addict anymore, you know? Um, So I'd start to say, hi, my name is Brian, and I used to struggle with sexual addiction, and I'm a child of God. And they're like, well, you shouldn't say that. You need to say this. And so God started pulling me away from that. So I started spending more time in small groups. But I didn't understand repentance. We had Bible studies, but they were more head-centered. They weren't really talking about heart-centered. I was still on the worship team, um, still doing those things. I would now at this point feel deep conviction when I would, when I would relapse. 
would feel really bad about it, but still, no, not victory. Okay, so um, one of the things that you wrote on the pre-interview questionnaire that I sent you was that you you were eventually married. What happened in that marriage that made you say, okay, I really need to do something more extreme, you know, like come to Kentucky for nine months? Yeah, it, it was just not being able to walk in victory and not only not being able to walk in victory, but not being able to be honest with her. Ultimately, I destroyed her trust for me, and that's what destroyed the marriage. That's what really got it to the point to where she's like, I can't believe anything you ever say. And that's what hurt her, I think, the most. Because I, I think she would have been okay if I would have been forthright. Hey, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, you know. Um, but she used to tell me, like, you're not telling me that you're struggling ever. Like, what's going on? You just tell me everything's fine. Um, and then we were having sexual problems and, you know, weren't satisfied as a married couple. So I was always pursuing my selfish sin rather than putting her needs before myself. And that's really what kind of dissolved the marriage. Mm. So, you know, you, you had talked about how you went to SLAA and that it was like, wow, I can just finally talk to somebody about this, right? Mm. But now you've gone a step closer to the Lord and like you're actually going to a, a Calvary Chapel and did you ever open up to one of your pastors about this? Well, not necessarily a pastor, but definitely guys in small group. My wife and I, my ex-wife and I had talked about with our pastor about our sexual, you know, sins before we got married, but I I didn't necessarily have accountability with my pastors at that point. It was more with small group guys. Okay. So the Lord had definitely been drawing you, but there were still some like big issues. I mean, you're having premarital sex, you're addicted to pornography, you're lying, you're hiding, you know, there were still like, God had done a work for sure, but there was a lot more that needed to be done, it sounds like. Yeah. And I didn't really, I wasn't at a place to surrender everything yet. You know, um, I wasn't willing to surrender because he had brought men and mentors into my life. That There was accountability there if I would have reached out for it. I think I wanted what I wanted, and she wanted what she wanted, and we rushed into that marriage when, you know, it it wasn't—I don't think it was the Lord's will at that time for us. And if we would have waited, I think it would have been wise. Um, But we wanted what we wanted. (laughs) Mm. All right, so you came to Pure Life, and and I think for some guys, when they come to— the residential program, and they start to read the books, go to counseling, hear the preaching, it could feel like, whoa, what they're telling me real Christianity is, is seems like really extreme, over the top, like, I don't think I need to do all this, like, I believe in Jesus, and that's probably enough. How did that strike you? I mean, you, you've you been in a lot of different situations and circumstances, so how did it seem to you when you came to Pure Life? I remember the first two weeks being like a honeymoon almost. I was excited. I was really grateful to be in a place where 
like my time was spent focusing on the Lord. Like I really wanted to know the Lord. I really wanted to get be done with the sin. I really wanted to seek him and learn about his word. So for me, it was exciting. As much as it was hard to leave my wife, things were so bad at home that it was almost like, wow, there's peace here. We're not fighting, you know? I'm not making her life miserable, you know? So so there was that sense of relief initially when I got there. Mm. And the books, Calvary Road was just so powerful and just really helped open my eyes to the cross and to the to Jesus's blood and you know uh, the mercy studies I remember my first prayer night I was there with TJ and uh, he was in my group and it was just like man this is great like so my initial reaction to being in the program wasn't bad at all it was thank you Lord I was grateful mm. okay so from there, honeymoon period, what came next? Like, because obviously there were things that really needed to be dealt with. Like the Lord had been trying to work with you on some things and you said you hadn't been ready, you weren't ready to surrender. Like what came next as you were like, okay, yes, I want what the Lord has for me. What was some of what he had for you? So my counselor always did a really good job of pointing me to Jesus at all times. And I think he did a really good job of not letting me get like just caught up in in my head because he noticed all those things. So he would always lead me to the the first beatitude. You need more poverty of spirit. And I like didn't understand that. And I remember, well, what is poverty of spirit? And I think it probably took, it was in my like fifth month. And um, we had a dual counseling session and one of the counselors confronted me and said, you've never worshiped God. I don't think you've ever worshiped God. And that like broke something inside of me. And I could, I, in that moment, I realized, yeah, I just have worshiped self. And like this excitement that I feel like I'm studying the word and all these things, like it's still about self. And I remember going into the chapel and I, I don't even think I stood up in that service. I, I just weeped. And I remember Glenn and Jesse standing beside me, and I could just hear them saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, like the whole service. And like that ministered to me, but I remember feeling like a breaking in that moment. And that weekend was Memorial Day weekend, and that was the the first like real breaking that I had that weekend where I went back in my mind through those girlfriends and and through those deceptions of my family and like really started to, not in a healthy way, but really started to just see my sin and how horrible that I had been. And the enemy twisted that and used that into self-condemnation and self-pity. And about the second day into that really deep repentant weekend, God convicted me about self-pity and, and condemnation and kind of showed me how, like even at an early age, I had used that with my dad's accident, with my divorce, my parents' divorce, self-pity to keep the cycle going. You know, you're not good, so you might as well go search out your own thing and this and that. And then I had to repent for self-pity that weekend. It took me probably two weeks after that, that breaking, and I think I started to understand what poverty of spirit was. I remember my my dad at the time just being like, what's wrong with you? Like, 
and I was like just apologizing to them. I was calling because they were the only ones that would talk to me. I would apologize to them for how rebellious I was as a child. And they're like, you don't have to apologize. And I'm like, no, I do. I really have to apologize. Like I see how horrible I've been. You know, for the first time I was experiencing that and I probably wasn't very fun. I feel sorry for my roommates. I probably should repent to them because those two weeks I was dark. I just was was just somber and, and just dark. I couldn't laugh. I, I had no joy. And then the Lord finally started ministering to me through that and bringing me out of that into, okay, you can be made new. You can walk in victory. You can accept my blood. I've forgiven you. You don't have to walk in condemnation. But there was a very, very dark season of breaking while I was in the program after about five months when I had those realizations and revelations of just how bad I had sinned and what I was doing. So before before that, even through all of the stuff that you had done, the drugs, the alcohol, the lying, the womanizing and whatever, like you had never really thought of yourself as like, wow, I am a messed up person. No. Nope. How, how had you seen yourself? As a good guy, as a... Uh, a good musician, you know, it was, it was all centered around putting on an appearance. Oh, I don't, I'm not as bad as, as someone like that, or I'm not killing anybody, or I'm not violent or any of those things. So um, I must be okay. Mm. So Jesus was like letting you really for the first time see who you were, what you had done, the people you'd hurt. Yep. And that was so shocking to you that it was like, I'm doomed. Mm. Like, there's no hope for me. That's how it sounds. Yeah, that's what that period kind of felt like, definitely. Did you wonder if God would forgive you or if he would accept you or if any—was that the feeling? Like, was it I can never change or like, that's it, I I can't ever have a relationship with God or— I don't think it was ever that I couldn't have a relationship with God. I think it was the fact that he still wanted to have a relationship with me. You know, hearing that, that there was mercy, hearing that that he wanted me to come to him, but he wanted me to forsake it, the sin. He wanted me to to get rid of it, you know, and, and that I had to get to a place to give him everything, you know, and coming to Kentucky was part of that because I had to surrender my career had to surrender the state that I lived in the majority of my life, uh, surrender the marriage, you know. I wasn't speaking with my wife. She didn't want to talk to me in the program, and rightfully so. So just realizing that that God was tearing down everything that I had thought that I had built up, he was was stripping away and, and bringing me down to a level to where, hey, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to to lay your life down. You know, it is going to cost you a lot. Mm. Um, what was it after that, during that two-week period, that kind of changed and started bringing you out of the other side? I think that's right around the time in the program where, where I got COVID with some other guys, and we didn't, you know, you can't go to work, we're quarantined, and there was really good Bible studies. We did a Bible study um, on the Holy Spirit. And it was from uh, Brooklyn Tab, I think. And and just being like 
absorbed in God's word and not having any energy either, like being able to, okay, I've got enough energy to get up and, and get in the word and pray for an hour and then I'm back in bed for 12 hours, you know. I think he used that sickness to heal me in a way, to bring me through it, but to also give me rest because my job was really physical in the program and the sickness was a chance to where I could really kind of seek the Lord. I remember um, reading Psalm 119 and it was like, okay, it didn't make any sense the first time I read it, but the more I kept reading it, the more it started making sense. Oh, I'm supposed to love what God wants me to do. Oh, he's, he's a good father. You know, he's not going to leave me. He's not going to leave me in this state. He's going to actually teach me and show me how to grow. He's going to show me how to conform to the image of his son, to do all these things that are impossible in my own, but through surrender and through Holy Spirit, he's going to bless me and he's going to do those things. So I started to come out of that condemnation and that self-pity a little bit at that point when I started to realize who he was. Mm. All right, so you're here at Pure Life, and you've had this kind of breakthrough moment like God really is doing something deep in your life. Um, how did your wife respond to that, that, wow, like, look, I'm, something's happening? <laughs> well, how did she respond? Um, she was at the point where I don't think anything would have broken through the choice that she had made. So she she had made up her mind that, you know, I was manipulating everyone at Pure Life still, um, just like I had manipulated and lied to her and that there wasn't any change. So she wasn't open to receive counsel from Pure Life. She told me she had her path with uh, her therapist that she was seeing. And, um, you know, she would tell me things like, you need to learn to love yourself and you need to do -hmm. different things. So she definitely had a different path. And that's kind of similar to my other girlfriend that I had realized, hey, we're on a different path now. So it's really hard to just come to that acknowledgement of, okay, God's really doing something in my life now, and I can't share it with this person that I love because of my sin and the consequences that have tore down this marriage. Now it's it's beyond repair because, you know, she, I've, I've wounded her so much that even with change now, even with the Lord working in my life, she wasn't willing to to let down her guard again to mm. to um, even talk to other women counselors or anything about this process, you know. So she just felt like you will never change, or even if you do, I'll I will never be able to trust you, basically. Yeah, yeah I remember um, Pastor Steve saying something like he's seen you know women when they flip the switch, and that's that's kind of what what I feel like this was. Um, I remember one of the women counselors talked to my counselor and was like, yeah, if, if this marriage survives, it will be a miracle of God. Mm-hmm. That's the only way. It's going to take a miracle from the Lord to, mm-hmm. to restore that marriage. So she eventually just basically said, I want a divorce. Yeah. Yeah, that was in the Zoom call that we had. And she said that she no longer wanted to pursue the marriage, and uh, you know she was she was happier with me gone. She was you know not depressed anymore. She was seeking the Lord. She was doing what she needed to do. Her business was well, and she just wanted me out of it. So I took counsel, and you know we didn't fight. I I signed papers. She sent papers. I signed them. She sent stuff to uh, my mom's house 
for me to get. Um, and I haven't seen her since that Zoom video. Mm. Yeah. So, well, you know, what I wanted to ask you was, so how was, how was your life different after that big breakthrough moment? You know, you like God really meets you and Mm. he's digging deep and showing you things. And then he's, then he's showing you like, you can be, you can have the Holy Spirit and your life can be different. And it's kind of messy, right? Like it's a new life, but there's some mess in there too, because now it's a new life, but you're not getting, you're not getting your marriage back. You're not getting what you had come to pure life for. Yeah. You're getting something different. Hmm. What was that? I don't know. How did God minister to you in that? Like, okay, this is going to be different, but it is what I have for you. The best way I can answer that would be that when I suffered in sin, it always led to more pain. But the suffering that we get when we suffer for God leads to hope. And what he did in my life after I graduated, the way that he set up living situations, the way he set up the jobs that he gave me and the ways that he's used me to do mercy, the way that he's used me in people's lives, it's just been so miraculous. You know, um, I know it's not me anymore. I know that when these good things happen, who to give the credit to, that it's not something that I've contrived or something that I've practiced and developed, but that it's, it's his goodness and um, Pastor Jeff says it all the time. When you suffer for God, you're going to have more hope because like, we are going to suffer. We are still going to go through things, but it's better than suffering for our sin. You know, it's, it's the, the fellowship of the suffering of Christ, mm. you know, how precious that is. And it's, it's not what we normally seek as humans, you know. Um, we look for pleasure. We look for those things. But suffering for for God's sake, suffering persecution for the Lord, suffering and realizing that, hey, this consequence happened because of my sin, but I'm not living that way anymore. So now the Lord can use me to bless other people. And, you know, I've asked for her forgiveness. She's told me she's forgiven me. So there's, there's that. I've done my repentance. I've done what I can for her, you know, and, and then you, you move forward. You just keep going after the Lord and He'll amaze you with what he's going to bring next. Mm. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, I mean, you were a professional musician. That's how you made your living. Mm. And you had already said that it was all about accomplishment and the notoriety or whatever you got from being a good musician. So that's like obviously, you know, there's idolatry there. Mm -hmm. And But you still play drums. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Lord hasn't asked you, I want you to lay this down and never go back. How did you navigate that? Like you said, the Lord is going to be Lord now, Mm. right? And so I'm going to surrender to him. How did you navigate music, playing music, and that sort of thing? It started in the program of realizing that I was on a music fest that I didn't realize until I tried to worship during my program, and my counselor was like, you need to stop that. And I was like, okay. So um, that was like nine months of of not performing or not playing music. And when I got out of the program, 
it was, uh, okay, only listen to worship music, only listen to those things. And I felt like God laid it on my heart to sing, which I was not good at. You could ask anybody in my past. Singing is not something that was would have been my forte at all. And playing guitar, again. So he brought worship back into like my devotion times, and he allowed me to worship him, just me and him. And he started teaching me. And the, the church that I go to, Lighthouse, when I started serving there, I, I started serving in the role of the sound team, so kind of behind the scenes. And I worked there in that position for months and just totally, hey, if the Lord restores me to a worship team, then that'll be great. But if not, then I'm okay with just worshiping him in the secret place, in my quiet time. And he really started teaching me about worship then. And then he's blessed me with being able to worship on the worship team now there on drums and to sing and to play guitar and piano and different things. But it's it's for his glory now. It's not about me practicing, you know. If I don't practice and I have to, to get up there and play, then... Uh, he's going to humble me most likely, you know? <laughs> um, and, I know that and, feeling. <laughs> yeah. And and that's okay. You know, being okay with making mistakes, being okay with being like, okay, this is what I have. But what I've been learning is like worship is just keeping your eyes on the Lord. You know, the, the moment I get my eyes off of him and I put it onto the performance or the technique, then I'm not truly worshiping. And leading worship, there's a different level of responsibility there obviously, but... I think the secret place times and and really worshiping for an audience of one is how that he's blessed me to to restore those things, you know. Um he knew he, he used music cuz I loved it to draw me to him and it's still something that I feel is deeply a way that I can root in God like especially now when I have battles like praise and worship and singing to him is one of the way I deal with stress and anxiety and fear or lust now or anything. You know, if I worship, I can break through that. But it's it's not self-worship anymore, you know, so just have to keep making sure that that's, that's where it's at and guard my heart. But it's been a blessing to be able to use music to, to bring honor to him and to use it to bless others. Hmm. That is so cool. You know, you're you're still like this has only been a couple of years since you've really been living out this new life. Mm. So you're still kind of, I don't know, like a toddler, <laughs> yeah. two year old, right? <laughs> um, like, what are the things that you would say to somebody? Um, what are the things that have been really important for you? You talked about worship. Mm. What are the most important things for you to, about living out this new life? I would say prayer. Um, my first year out of the program, God really convicted me that without prayer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall back into sin. And I, I experienced that. Anytime my prayer life would slack, I mean, I would still study in the Bible. I was still getting up in two hours of devotion. But without that prayer time, without that intimate connection of just spending time, even without the word open, but just spending time with the Father in prayer, praying for others, interceding for others, doing those things. Without that, I fall because that's the relationship part. That's what I never had growing up. It was a, a ritual, right? 
But when it becomes relationship, then he can actually minister. He can actually teach. Um, and that's what he, he showed me um, a little bit last year was the, the classes, the discipleship training that, that I was able to receive from Glenn and from a perspectives course that I took and uh, just seeing how much he wants to love us and train us and teach us. But if it's not done through prayer, then it's all just head knowledge. Um, so that, that, I would say, coming out of the program, pray more than you think you need to. And beware when your prayer life starts to wane. There's nothing, I don't think, anything more important. I think that's why Paul says pray ceasingly, unceasingly. You know, just you have to keep going. You just have to keep praying. And I hope to continue to do that more, you know. Mm. Yeah, so if you were going to talk to somebody who was in the same place that you were before you came to PLM, what would you say to them? Mm. You can trust God. You can trust God with everything, even when you don't think that it it makes sense, and even when it hurts the most deepest places inside of you. If God's in it, you can completely trust Him. Mm. He won't. He won't let you down ever. All right. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. This is a, a huge blessing. Um, could you just do something a little bit different? Could you just pray for people who are listening? Heavenly Father, uh, we just come before you now in the, the wonderful, beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. And I just pray for all the, the people out there listening right now, God, that you would take your blood, and that you would cover them. And God, I pray for this testimony to to go far and to benefit your kingdom, Lord, that you would get glory through all the things the enemy meant for harm. Lord God, that you, you would just transform people's lives, God, as you've done with me, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you could do it for me, God. I know that you've got freedom for so many people listening right now, and I just Proclaim your name over their lives. Jesus, you want to be glorified in the earth, and it's so amazing that you choose to use us, Lord. So I pray for the hope of Jesus to just fill hearts right now. Those that are stuck in bondage, those that are deceived, that don't even know that they need you yet, Jesus, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would soften their hearts, and that you would just give them a revelation of your wisdom, Lord. Give them a revelation of your goodness. Help them to know your mercy, God, and help them to see that you are worth everything, God. You are truly worthy of it all, Lord. So I thank you, Lord. I pray that you would guard hearts from condemnation. I pray that you would guard hearts from the wicked ways of the the evil one, Lord, and that you would break addiction, Lord, in, in people's lives, God. I pray that you would break through bitterness and resentment in people's hearts, God, that, that truth and love and mercy would just go forth into the earth, Lord. Thank you, God, that you're the Redeemer, Jesus. We do praise you, Lord, and we uh, give you all thanks. May you get all the glory. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. 
Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.